edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of P and Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis. And the citation for this case is 2017 UKSC 65. P is a police officer who, in 2011, was actually arrested herself. There was an internal disciplinary investigation as a result of this where she argued that her conduct was due to her having post-traumatic stress disorder after being assaulted the previous year while she was on duty. Despite these arguments, a disciplinary charge was still brought against P before a police misconduct panel and in the end this panel decided that she should be dismissed without notice. Rather unusually, P brought two separate appeals against this decision. Firstly, under the distinct system for police, there is a police appeals tribunal where most of such cases end up. However, for our purposes, we are going to focus on the second appeal to the employment tribunal. This is unusual because while most regular employment disputes go to an employment tribunal, those that involve the police are generally kept separate. The basis for P's argument was that her dismissal from the service was a form of disability discrimination and disability-related harassment originating in a failure to make a reasonable adjustment by the police itself. Unfortunately for P, the Employment Tribunal, the Employment Appeal Tribunal and then even the Court of Appeal all dismissed her appeal on the basis that her claim was barred by judicial immunity. In other words, the judges cannot answer the question because there is a separate regime for employment disputes involving police officers. Undeterred, P sought to challenge this in the Supreme Court itself, where we picked the case up. In the end, the case was decided based on principles of EU law because, as we know, the European Union grants all citizens certain rights under employment law, with only minimal exceptions. Most law students will be aware of the case of Van Gendenloos and the principle of direct effect whereby rights under EU law take precedent over domestic law. With this in mind, Directive 2000-78 asserts that all people should be treated equally with respect to their employment and working conditions. And this includes police officers. Part of this is that effective judicial procedures and remedies are available in line with the general EU law principles of equivalence and effectiveness. Equivalence, first of all, means that when it comes to the directive, police officers should have the same rights as everyone else, and so they should be able to bring a case before the employment tribunals, instead of only to the police tribunals. Meanwhile, effectiveness looks at the way that the tribunals operate, and clearly the employment tribunals are more effective than the police tribunals, because the remedies that they can offer are more wide-ranging. Therefore, by denying police officers access to the employment tribunals, the UK is in breach of EU law. The principle of non-discrimination is so sacrosanct that it must take precedent over other arguments such as judicial immunity. The justices of the Supreme Court did also make reference to domestic legislation when coming to their decision, and in particular the Equality Act 2010, which states that police constables are to be regarded as employees in the context of their relationship with senior officers. This means that discrimination claims can be brought by police officers 
before the employment tribunals. The confusion comes in because the Act does not cover disciplinary actions entrusted to the misconduct panel that P herself faced, and this is where the conflict with EU law occurs. In the unanimous judgment, the justices did manage to get around this by interpreting the relevant section, section 42.1, in such a way that it does implicitly apply to the disciplinary function of misconduct panels. It could be argued that this is essentially changing the actual legislation passed by Parliament, but in anticipation of this criticism they pointed out that in fact their interpretation follows the gist of the Equality Act anyway, and ensures that it complies with EU law. In the end, the practical result for Pete is that her case will head back to the Employment Tribunal, where judicial immunity will no longer apply. Furthermore, the previous Court of Appeal case, Heath and Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis 2004, that favoured judicial immunity in these circumstances, was overruled. Overall, the decision is probably a bit of an interpretive reach for the Supreme Court. It is certainly true that the law in this area is not very clear based on the existing legislation in the Equality Act, but the justices in this instance have arguably created a new right under UK law without the need for the legislature to get involved. Of course, they would not see it like that and would submit that the right already existed under the directive, and so they were only responsible for elucidating it within the context of existing UK legislation. The approach taken in the case, though, raises two key questions moving forward. In the first instance, how would this case be decided after Brexit? While we still remain a part of the European Union, the court is free to look at to cases like van Gendenloos, as well as to general principles of EU law, such as equivalence and effectiveness. But what happens to these after we leave? Arguably, if the bulk of EU legislation is retained in the short term, then the principles could be implied or be argued to have become part of the common law in the UK. But it would be just as easy to argue that at the same time that we lose the supremacy of EU law, we also lose other related principles as well. This confusion and uncertainty is a real problem and could affect not only people like P, from this case, but even the justices themselves. President of the court, Lady Hale, has called on the government to ensure that there will be legal certainty moving forward, but it will most likely be hard to fill all the gaps, and in some areas the courts will be operating in almost a complete vacuum. This means the law may change greatly, and often, in the years following Brexit. The second question relates to the judicial activism we have already discussed. Will this be a common feature of the court under new president, Lady Hale? Although she did not give the lead judgment, she sat in on this case, and even with the most sympathetic reading, it is hard to deny that the court has taken the opportunity to fill in the gaps here. So is this a sign of things to come for the Hale presidency? Many people would love for Hale to be more proactive as either a counterbalance to the government, or simply as someone who is an expert in areas of the law where other gaps need to be filled, such as family law. Those people would do well, however, to curb their enthusiasm. Okay, Hale should make her mark on the court during her tenure, but if she overstretches, the law will only become more uncertain. The government will react in kind with legislation, and ultimately the reputation of the court itself may suffer. There are legitimate questions about how the legal system in the UK will operate as we begin to leave the European Union.
But where there is no legislation in place to interpret, it is not for the courts to seize on the chance to provide their own answers instead. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of UK Law Weekly, and also thanks to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Thanks as ever to everyone who manages to provide a rating and a review on iTunes. That is always very much appreciated. And um, all that's left for me to say is that I hope to speak to you again next week. That's all from me. Bye.